Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, and you can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, this is the last time it will line up with the day of the month, but we're on day 29. Hey, the last time. Yes. Uh, so welcome. I'm glad you're jumping in with us. Uh, and just so you know, if there's questions that you have along the way, along the journey of the, reading the Bible together in the year, we would love to take time week over week as much as we can to answer those questions for you. There's three ways you can send us those questions. One is an email. Uh, the email address is infogrove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question. Uh, the two ways, the two other ways are through social media. You can direct message us on Facebook. We are the Grove Church in Washington State, as Evan has already said. Or you can DM us with Instagram. Our Instagram handle is the Grove CH. Uh, you can direct message us there. We get the questions and we take time as much as we can to answer them. So make sure to do that. This is going to be, this is good. listeners, here's the deal. Evan's word, we're going to take like three hours on this, on this episode. It's not going to be three hours. So, I think that this has a real possibility of being the longest episode <laughs> that we've ever done. Do you know what our longest episode is? It's longest one we've ever done was like an hour and 20. Oh, that's it? So well, I, that's nothing. Yeah, we could, we could, we could surpass that. Um, I was thinking about like, man, what can we cut out? And then I realized, honestly, there's nothing to cut out because they're two of like in Job, at least these are like my four favorite speeches and it's not that close. Which and means then, Evan's going to take the majority of our time and I'm going to feel rushed. Well, and then so we're going through you. and don't feel rushed. Yeah. Because we're going through like the beginning of Exodus, which is incredible. And there's well, and it's so narrative. I was just saying it's yeah. a narrative, which is really hard to like hone in on just a few thoughts, but like to help develop the story and understand the context behind it. So it's just narrative right now. So yeah, there's so much to talk about. So we'll, we'll, uh, yeah. So I hope you got a long drive ahead of you or a long project you're working on so that way you don't have to pause us in the middle. But if you do, we won't be offended. And the hope today is not that we're just rambling and it's a long episode that sucks. No, this is going to be perhaps the greatest episode <laughs> of Let's Read the Bible Ever. Let's get started. In Job, we're in chapter 35. This is the third speech of Elihu and it is his shortest speech. Um, however, like I said, this is one of, it's one of the most interesting, unlike Bildad's speech, which was short and like okay, why'd you even bother talking, man? Elihu's short speech is actually really cool. So the speech wrestles with the question, what's the point of living righteously if God still allows me pain? So basically- It's a good question. It's a good question. It's also the question that is kind of implicit in all of the friends and, and Job himself, right? Because the whole thing is, I have suffered unrighteously because I was living righteously under God and yet this pain has come upon me. So Job's contention is that he should not be suffering this way. The friend's contention is that he should be suffering this way because of what he's done. So it's a whole thing. This is also the only speech where Elihu directly addresses the friends. So in the previous two speeches, Elihu addresses Job. He talks to Job. I think, well, I, I take that back. In the first part of the speech, I think he references the friends for a second, but the main parts of his speeches, he's referencing Job. This one, he's talking to, he's talking to both of them. So he's clearly saying that both of them have fallen short of answering the question. Um, his main point is asking why anyone should expect an answer from God when they cry out in vain. So, and the idea here is, and I, I think this is something that we, as pastors, we see it all the time where people kind of, you know, life is good. They kind of let their relationship with God completely go to the wayside. You don't, you like, you don't see them anymore. And then like years later, they kind of resurface because something terrible has happened and they're, and they're coming back, which again, is not a bad thing. And a lot of times that's loving 
uh, it's lovingly what God is doing is bringing people back in that instance. But the idea here that Elihu is getting at is that there, it's kind of empty prayers when you don't have a true relationship with God and you only pray, you only cry out when you're asking God for things. Um, I forgot what pastor it was, but I remember someone like uh, when I was a kid, one of the pastors talked about how like it's like seeing God like a vending machine where like your only relationship is just like type in some things on a pad and he gives it to you. Put in some money and then you get something back. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. With the type and everything, that's like some people, that's exactly like the way that we view it. So Elihu's talking a little bit about that. And then he points out that Job straight up said that God is not aware and he needs to be informed of his suffering. So Elihu, and it's kind of interesting because it's, it's, it's hard to catch, but he goes, God doesn't listen to people who do this, how much less you who have said that God is not aware and needs to be informed of suffering. And so I think what Elihu, basically the, the, in the commentaries I read, the whole idea is sometimes if Elihu here is saying that Job is one of those people that didn't have relationship with God, he's clearly gone too far because we know that's not true. We know mm-hmm. from the beginning of the book that Job has a great relationship with God. Um, but I don't think that's what Elihu is saying here. I'm saying he's he's looking at the examples of these people who are crying out in vain and then also saying, Job, here's what you've done. It's slightly different, but it's leading to the same result. Yeah. So, but again, if it's an example of Elihu overstepping then, or if it's an example of Elihu claiming that Job's relationship with God was empty, then he's clearly overstepping here. Um, I think he's just pointing out that Job has spoken. He uses this exact phrase that Job has spoken without knowledge in his exasperation. So as Job gets more and more frustrated and let's be honest, if you're talking with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, I would also be super exasperated. Uh, but he's saying that in Job's exasperation, he has um, said things that need rebuking. And I think that is, well, as we'll see here in a little bit, I think that's true. So chapter 36, uh, it's the final speech, and it's interesting for a bunch of different reasons. Number one, it's the first speech that, well, I, I shouldn't say this. Of the three speeches, all of them... Elihu uses the example of Job, you've said this. Now let me refute that. This is not the case with the fourth speech. So it seems like this is kind of just original thoughts that Elihu is having, not directly answering Job. Because of this, I think it begins with the other speeches begin with, and then Elihu answered and said. So between, and not the first speech doesn't begin that that way because it's the whole Elihu burned with anger. Uh, But the second speech and the third speech, remember, Elihu gives space for Job to answer. And when Job doesn't answer, it says Elihu answered and said. This one says Elihu continued or continuing Elihu said. And so I I think the two things we can say there is number one, it's breaking with the standard format of the other speeches. And then the other thing is that basically I think in in this model, he's not answering something that Job has said. He's just straight up continuing. So Mm -hmm. cool there. Uh, And then, oh, and then the the implication there being that Elihu didn't give Job space to respond in between the speeches. He just kind of jumped right into it, which- But Job didn't respond the previous two times either, right? Yeah. I I don't think, I don't think it was wrong of Elihu. No. So I wonder if that's part of the, the, the indication here too, is the simple fact that because Job didn't respond, Elihu in the moment, like, cause if you and I are having a conversation- even if I'm rebuking you, which happens all the time, I know. All the um, time. But with those moments where I can tell non-verbally if you're going to engage versus not, if I've given you a couple opportunities and you don't really engage, it could also be like, I know you're not going to because I can tell by your non-verbal cues. And moves on. That may be overly, sim- like way too simplistic of, a, of an observation. But either way, he doesn't give Job a chance to speak and he just continues on. Mm-hmm. So, but so, no, absolutely. There's different things that go on. Who knows? And so 
this is really interesting. The first half of chapter of chapter the first half of chapter thirty six. <laughs> chaffer, I like chaffer, chaffer better. Uh, it, it sees Elihu extolling the glory of God, and then we see a tonal shift in verse twenty four. And so, and he begins to describe a a great storm. And so, here's the thing: this was suggested in one of the commentaries. It was suggested that hey, you know, maybe there's actually a storm that's coming, and Elihu's seeing it. And I was like, that's a really interesting thought. The more I've looked into it. I am so convinced. Like this is the most <laughs> open-handed thing that I'm a hundred percent convinced about. Like obviously, this isn't like a core issue of Christianity or anything. Um, but I just, yeah, I'm I'm completely convinced that when in starting in verse 24, there's a storm that is either off in the distance and it's approaching, or it starts light and it's giving getting heavier and heavier. Um, and to explain it, because so I was. This is the last time. I mean, it's not like I've been plugging it a lot, but it's the last time I'm going to plug the book that doesn't exist yet. Because, but maybe, because maybe Evan's an unpublished author. So if you're a publisher and you want to look into the book of Job more, I have a book you should read. There you go. But maybe manuscript you should read. Sorry, manuscript. Maybe by the time you're listening is the, listening to this, it does exist. So who knows? Um, if it does exist, it's called Suffering in the Silence of God. So <laughs> maybe. anyway, so uh, but when I was going through Evan it, Westerfield. Uh, Anna was editing it for me. And so one of the things she said is like, okay, well, like basically she was like, I don't read it this way. So you need to really explain why, why are you reading it this way so that people don't kind of get confused. And I was like, oh, that's a good point. And so then I just copied the footnote that I put in there. So here's what I said. This, this is, is this why is Evan's footnote. Yeah. Copied, this is why I read it this way. Um, while it's not explicitly stated, I think there are a few reasons to imagine the storm as a physical one that Elihu is observing. Chapter 38 begins with the statement, then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind, implying that the men are physically experiencing the storm. Since there does not seem to be any time between Elihu's final speech and Yahweh's first, it seems fair to me to assume that the whirlwind was gathering while Elihu was speaking. So the question then must be asked, when did this whirlwind begin? And here I think it's not a major leap of logic to say that it began when Elihu suddenly switches metaphors to a mighty storm. Perhaps Elihu sees a storm gathering in the distance and begins to extol God's glory in that storm. As it edges closer and closer, growing in intensity, that would explain the heightened language of chapter 37. Okay, so basically I'm imagining that Elihu starts talking, it's lightly raining. By the time Elihu is ending his speech, he's shouting, the wind is blowing, the men are like wanting to go inside, but they're not going to do it. And kind of they're in the eye of like almost a hurricane, like the eye of a storm where everything around them is blowing and going crazy. So with that being said, just see how it changes how we would read these verses. So this is close this, your eyes with that imagery in mind and then let Evan read. Yeah, and here's some, and here's some of the things. Uh, at this my heart also trembles and it leaps out of the out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole of heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. And it goes on like this for a long time, but to, to kind of skip to the end, just imagine, again, this is the where the storm is at its highest, where everyone is just kind of like, what is going on right now? And no one looks, and now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty, the almighty. We cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. For he does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. And the very next line 
is then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. So, I mean, for me, this is like the absolute, like John the Baptist, like, like, and like, obviously John the Baptist is a better man than Elihu because Elihu has like, I mean, not John the Baptist wasn't perfect, but Elihu has a lot of faults that we don't talk about, but I think so clearly here, he is preparing for Yahweh's final speech and you can kind of just see it where he's like, I, I feel like he can see what's coming at the very end of chapter 37 and he understands like, oh crap, like, <laughs> like this, like God is about to speak. And so that you can get that language of out of the North, which in, um, in ancient Mesopotamian tradition, the gods lived in the North. So that's kind of a way of saying like, this is happening out of the North comes golden splendor. God is clothed with, clothed with awesome majesty, the almighty. We cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore men fear him. He does not regard any who arise in their own conceit. And then you can just imagine the voice of God booming out of the storm and talking to Well, and I almost in that moment, like <clears throat> you just envision, like at first off, you didn't do it justice because you said, imagine a lie who's shouting through a, over a whirlwind. That's here, true. And you just read it like normal. Come on, man. It's almost got like, and now no one looks on the lo-. Like, it's, it's just like, I, you got to embrace that a bit. Anyways. Of all the scenes in the Bible, this is one of the ones that I would love to see put to film oh, dude. to actually like get the cinematic picture of just the wind and the rain beating on their yeah. face as Elihu's shouting that this Well, is and happening. I almost in the moment too, like, and then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, the moment he says a word, like, I almost envision like... The whirlwind's still happening, but everything go deafening silence except God's voice. Like Ooh. it's almost one of those things, right? Where you can you can picture. That. And even as like even as we've read through it this week, or even as I've read through it this week, and um, you know, leading up to today, and and just even the concept, like there has to be something building in this moment. Like when Elihu is wrapping up, he, it's almost like because of that tonal shift, because of the shift in Elihu's speech, it, you've got it. You, he's got to be seeing something, and even like. Look at look further into the Old Testament where you see the encounter Elijah has on Mount Horeb, where it's you have this massive windstorm, you have this massive earthquake, you have this massive fire coming down, and it says that God was not in those things. But ancient history shows like it's God reveals Himself through splendor. Mm-hmm. The Egyptians, like or not the Egyptians, sorry, the Israelites when they're leaving Egypt, uh, it's it's through a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So there's these things that oftentimes emulate and and resemble God's presence. Uh, we see, we'll see this next week when we read in Exodus, where God descends on the mountain, uh, Mount Sinai, really. He descends on this mountain, but he descends in, in, in power. Um, and so you can almost sense this heightening. In, and so I, I, whether or not I'm like 100% convinced, like totally, I could see this playing out where it's like, yeah, absolutely. God's showing up and he's, it's like almost like a slow stroll. Right. It's uh, whenever I feel like I'm in trouble, I remember as a kid and I hear my dad come home. Oh, yeah. And the door opens. I know the feeling. And there's this dramatic buildup that's existing. Like my dad, I can hear the car, I can hear the garage door open, or I can hear the, the door shut outside. I'm like, oh man, I'm going to get it. Like it's, it's this like anxiousness that creates. Uh, and so I could just see like the cinematic like reality and not to be overly Hollywood with this because I don't, th- I, I want to be careful there too. But there is something like tangible happening in this moment as a lie who is having a conversation and and not even a conversation, but making a, making an argument or presenting his argument and his stance to, to Job. So uh, I could totally see it building up and be this incredible thing. So yeah, no, it, I'm right there with you. I, I, yeah, I think it's there. Plus, it, I will also point out in the in chapter 38, it doesn't say, and then a mighty whirlwind arose and the Lord spoke out of it. It says 
Lord spoke out the world as if the world, yeah, like the whirlwind. It was, yeah, it the was whirlwind. There. It showed up. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously, it's right there. Okay. Well, okay, listeners, here's the deal. We're now at like, this is just the high point of the book of Job. It's the climax of the story. This is the best poetry in the book. Like it's so, it's so good. And I want to, I want to try and do it justice. So we're going to go through it, you know, kind of slow. These are the two speeches of Yahweh at the end of the book, which are kind of, they're Job's answers. They're, it's not the way he's going to expect it. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but this is God choosing they're to Job's speak to answers Job. That he's been looking for, to be clear. Right. Because when you say the Job's answers, I feel like is I, I, my first thought went to Job responding. No, no, no. This is God's response right. to everything that's played out, to the, to, the, to the cry that Job has presented, the case that Job has pre- presented. Because even remind, Job made his final closing argument. We re- did this last week. We, we read through it a couple weeks ago, or I guess last week. So that's, that's what happened. Job has already made his appeal. Elihu said it. And so God finally shows up and answers. Yep. And before we get into it, I, I think we should take a moment and think about, the, like, sometimes we just skip over things in the Bible because we know what happened. Like, God is audibly speaking to Job. Yep. Like, all of the friends are here. They're all seeing this. Like, a mighty whirlwind is going around them, and they are hearing the literal voice of God. That, that's... That's awesome. That's re- and awesome in the actual sense of the word. <laughs> like it's, yeah, what that, awesome actually entails. Yeah, yes. that is that is insane. It's really cool. So, with that being said, starting in verse two, it says, "Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge?" Oh snap! Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy? Um, also, there's that idiom, sons of God, again, because that came up a couple weeks ago. So we're talking yeah. about like angels there. Anyway, so yeah. This is not the way that Job was kind of expecting this to go. <laughs> it's true. When it's, and it's really interesting. But let's be honest. Did he really have an expectation? He had a certain expectation as far as what he would like to see mm-hmm. play out. But how do you, you can't really have an expectation how God's going to actually respond. So even when God shows up, it's like, oh crap. It's, and it's literally dad comes home. And I think you can tell like, it's like, oh no, because what is one of the first things that God says is who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge, which is one of the rebukes that Elihu gave to Job is that you speak without knowledge. So, yep. oh Yay. man. And then if that wasn't enough, it's dressed for action like a man <laughs> and I will question you and you will make it known to me. I do think it's really interesting that we have, there's, I, I kind of view Job and Habakkuk almost as sister books because they're both about men struggling with the way that God is choosing to run the universe. But it's so interesting how different the tone is because in Job, God goes after Job. Like, and, and it's and it's it's not all like it's not all negative. Um, there's a little bit of humor that gets mixed in once we get to Leviathan, which is really funny. Um, and then clearly God restores Job. Spoilers, but God what? restores Job Come at the on. end. And and after after all of this. Um, but like when Habakkuk, when God answers Habakkuk, it's almost like this, like, oh, hey, buddy, no, like, it's going to be okay. Like, let me tell you about this. And then with Job, it's like, okay, bud, put on your big boy pants. Let's talk about this for a little bit. Um, and God is just- for what you ask for. Yep. And God is just asking rhetorical question, rhetorical question with laced with sarcasm all throughout almost all of chapter 38. Um, and they are in the vein of, they kind of follow these four basic ideas. It's where were you? So like, oh, Job, I mean, since you know, 
so much about how I should run the universe. Tell me, where were you when I when I created it? You were among us, right? Like when when we were all there yeah. and we created like I created the universe and the angels were all like, oh wow, this is amazing. Job, you were with them, right? Because clearly you wouldn't tell me how to do my job if you weren't there for the start of it. Um, who are you is another one of the questions of basically like, oh, I'm sorry, Job. I forgot that you were a rival god of some kind. That's that's my bad. Um, how much do you know is another one of the questions or basically just questioning like, what's your knowledge of all of this, Job, since you want to tell me what to do? Tell me about all of these other things that you must know about. And then finally, how powerful are you? Again, it's this idea of if you want to tell God Here's how you should do it instead. Oh, okay. I, well, clearly you must be a pretty powerful guy, Job, because you must have done this yourself. If you're gonna, uh, yeah. And I don't want to be too flippant with this because obviously I'm doing a lot of paraphrasing here. Um, but what these questions are designed to do, and we'll talk about this in more of the uh, the application section. But what these questions are designed to, designed to do is to remind Job of who he is mm-hmm. and what he and and the way he's been talking about God which is where Job is going to have to repent because those are the in the whole of the book of Job that's pretty much the only way that he actually sins that we're made aware of so ultimately the chapter 38 ends with this section, which is, I I think this is just beautiful. Um, Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their season or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth the lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind who can number the clouds by wisdom who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into the into a mass and the clods stick fast together and so you can kind of get this picture of again imagining this whirlwind but they're in the eye of it so god is pointing out toward and maybe this is happening at night because he's pointing to what's the first thing he points to constellations the pleiades the orions the maseroth and the bear are all famous constellations to the the peoples of the ancient near east um, and so he's pointing to the sky and then he's pointing to lightning and all these different things and, and the rain pouring down. And it, essentially God is fully displaying his, I shouldn't say fully, he's not fully displaying, but he's displaying a lot of his power here and particularly his power over creation. Um, and then this is where we get an interesting shift where God, he, he, he makes a shift away from describing the heavens and the weather and kind of those sort of things, or even the creation of the earth. And for the rest of his speeches, he focuses on creation almost exclusively. Um, and this starts off with a bunch of different animals that he's going to kind of question Job about. And then eventually he's going to go to two, which we'll talk about that in here in the next speech. Um, but first Job is asked, is he powerful enough to hunt prey like the lions do for their cubs? So basically like, oh, Job, like, you know, again, since you are such a powerful guy, why don't you go out into the savannah and uh, hunt and hunt the hunt a, hunt a gazelle, you know, just chase one down, <laughs> bring it back for your cubs. The lions do that all the time. Uh, he gets asked, Job is asked if he knows how the raven is able to be fed and not go hungry. Um and then we get a little fun mini series I, I put in the middle of this where it's three animals, but they all have domesticated equivalents that Job would have in his herds. So remember, Job's wealth is measured in his land and with his with his animals. And so Job is asked if he's ever seen a mountain goat give birth. And so again, here what, what he's getting at is Job has complete mastery over the goats in his in his herd, right? Like he is 
mating them the way that he wants so that they, you know, he gets the offspring that he desires. He's obviously there for the births, or at least if he's not there, his servants are there for the births of all these goats. And yet there's a whole nother species of goat that Job has no idea how this works. And so I was curious because I looked it up like, well, where do mountain goats give birth? And basically they go to the top of mountains. <laughs> and so like the, the whole point is that it's, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult for humans to naturally get to those places. And so Job almost assuredly would have never actually seen a mountain goat give birth or even seen them when they're very, very young. Uh, Job is asked if he knows how the African wild ass survives in the middle of the desert. So this is a species of donkey that still exists today. Um, it's really, I was, again, I was digging into it. It's super interesting. They live in the desert. <laughs> and so, but they find water, they're able to survive. And so again, Job would have been familiar with his own domesticated donkeys that he has to feed, he has to care for. And yet there's this whole nother breed of the animal that he, that's kind of a mystery to him. And then finally, uh, Job is asked if he can uh, domesticate the aurochs, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And this is, this one really bums me out. Uh, this is a species of wild ox in Europe that went extinct in like the 1600s. So this is not like, you know what I mean? It's not one of those that is kind of like in ancient times we know about it, but it's long gone. Like, ah, oh, we killed this thing like not that long ago. And I'm also, you know, listeners, I'm a bit of a bovine guy. You know, if you couldn't tell, from the way I talk. It's just, uh, I like a good, I like a good bison. I like a good Buffalo. When we were in, when uh, Ashley and I went to Yellowstone, I was like all about just like watching and staring at the bison for as long as I could. I was one of those idiots that didn't back far enough away. Cause one like just walked in front of me and I was like, I was just so mesmerized by it that I just kind of stood there and looked at it. And then after it left, I was like, you know, I probably should have like not been that close to it. That was probably really dumb of me. But anyway, I love, I love a good, love a good bovine species. And it's a bummer that the aurochs isn't around anymore. But <laughs> again, Joe would have domesticated ca cattle. He has domesticated oxen in his herds that he would use for plowing and things like that. And yet just outside of his herds, there's a whole nother species that's similar, but he, he knows he can't have mastery over. So God is kind of pointing these things out to it, uh, to him. He then shifts into the ostrich where Yahweh kind of just makes fun of how ridiculous the ostrich is, which is really weird. <laughs> like, like all he's kind of praising a bunch of these animals, about how like awesome they are. And then he gets to the ostrich and he's like, oh yeah, the ostrich, that thing's ridiculous. And he talks about the ostrich mating dance, which I looked up and I would encourage you listener, look it up. It actually is really interesting. Uh, but the male kind of like waves it's i wish you could all see evan right now yeah, I'm talking I'm, about this i don't know why i'm acting it out because no one can see it but uh the ostrich kind of the male ostrich will like wave its arms in the air like and it just doesn't care and then the female though uh it it looks like if you've ever seen craig kimbrell who is a pitcher i don't know if he's still in the league or not but basically just look up the ostrich mating dance look up what the female does and then look up craig kimbrell and you'll see it's basically the exact same thing where they kind of like put out their arms, let their wings flap down a little bit, put their necks down. It's like right what he does before he pitches. So anyway, that's <laughs> only if you're a baseball fan. Do you care I about no that? I have no idea. I thought it was really interesting. When I when I looked at the video of it, I was like, hey, I've seen that move before. I know him. There you go. Maybe but that's where he got it from. That could be. He, so he saw an ostrich and he was inspired. He was like, this is what I C need Craig, to do. Craig, if you're listening, can you please comment in and let us know. There you go. Uh, and then it's followed by the war horse. So God kind of talks about you know, uh, the one of the more ridiculous animals of creation from the way that he describes it. He talks about how silly it is. Uh, and then he talked about the war horse, which God is clearly, he's all about like, hey, like guys, remember the horse? I created that. That thing's pretty sweet. Like, so this is like, just listen to the way that God describes it. He says, 
Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe its neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws <laughs> in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the quiver, the flashing spear, the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of a trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, aha, he smells battle from afar, the thunder of captains and the shouting. Like, that's just like, that's just God saying, I did a great job with the horse. Let's all just think about like how awesome this thing is. So I, I, I love that. I love that section there. It's a really cool description of the war horse. Um, and then the final questions of the speech are about if Job can control the hawk or the eagle, which of course is a negative. And if you really want to stretch it, you could say like with falconry, you can tame a falcon to a certain extent, but I don't believe you can do that with a hawk and eagle. Someone someone who's a real fan is going to like be like, that's a stupid thing to say. Of course you can. So, And I guess I've seen shows with it before, but it wouldn't have been widely done like it would be with the falcon. So, Well, but either way, taming them is not controlling them. True, true. All right. So chapter 40, moving on, gives us the second and final speech of Yahweh. Uh, so like most of the speeches that came before, God pauses. So he does his first speech and he, you know, he's going to give space ahead, Joe. for Joe to answer. Yeah. Hey, no. All right. Now I've said, I've said what I wanted to say. Why don't you let me know? Um, and so here's what we get. And Job, and the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So, all right, Job. You're up. You're up. And then Job answered and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. So you can kind of imagine this moment. Job's getting the point. He's like, I'm just a man. What am I supposed to say to you? And I like this. He says, I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and will not answer. And you kind of get this idea that he's like, oh shoot. Well, twice, twice I spoke, but no more after that is kind of what's happening there. And he like takes his hands off his mouth for a second and puts them back on. And so then... The Lord answered Job and said, good job, Job. Thank you for that. <laughs> no, the Lord answered Job okay, out of the world. And he said, Psych. dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? So clearly Job did not satisfy God in this moment. There's something else that God is after, which we'll see in Job's reply to his second speech. So no spoilers there, but I mean, I'm sure I'm spo I've spoiled it before, but this is followed by God basically daring Job to take his job for a little bit. So Bruce Almighty style, um, obviously that's, that's a very flippant way of saying it, but the way God says it, like, oh, Job, why don't you put on the raiment of glory of God and see how you would do running the universe? So it is kind of a similar thing to that. This then gives way to the final two mysterious creatures that Yahweh speaks of, Behemoth and Leviathan. By far the coolest names of any of any, of, and I guess that's because we we transliterated them. But um, at least I can, I'm assuming that happened. That might not be what happened there. Um, so there's a couple different ways you can go with this. Um, the most common identification for Behemoth and Leviathan is that the hippopotamus is Behemoth and the crocodile is Leviathan. Um, however, you could go elephant for Behemoth, um, and that would be basically there's one passage where it talks about. Um, the tail of behemoth being super long and like thick and stuff like that. And so some people will say that should have been translated trunk 
which then boom, elephant makes total sense. Um, other people will say, I guess to keep it appropriate that it could be translated as like phallus. And so if that's the case, then it would describe like a hippo, particularly in the middle of mating season is what that would look like as well. Um, if you, you could do that, they could both be mythical creatures of legend where kind of like just behemoth and Leviathan, Leviathan, the way that we would talk about like dragons, I guess, where it's like something that we all understand are fake, but still it would, it would, um, it would communicate something to say that God is mightier or that someone is mightier than a dragon, Mm -hmm. right? Even though we don't have a physical example of a dragon, we would still in our heads be able to picture what is being described here. Um, I, one of the commentaries I read said that behemoth was death itself and that Leviathan Mm. is the Satan, which is kind of interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, I don't hold to that, but it's an interesting thought. Um, and then finally, I, I just put, if you really want them to be dinosaurs, I won't take that away from you. So that's fine with me too. In other words, I don't really think they are, but if you want to think that, that's fine. I think, well, I think there's, yeah, there's two ways you could do it. You could go dinosaurs are walking around in the middle of Job, which would mm-hmm. be, which would be interesting. Um, or the other way you could do it is that the people have found fossils of them. And then the myths of the myths of what they see grow up around the fossils, which I kind of, I kind of think is what happened with dragons. Cause you, Dragons are kind of a universal across the board thing that most cultures came up with. And so I do wonder if like, yeah, well, there, I mean, dragons even referred to in revelation, right? right? I mean, there's, so there's, there's gotta be some recognition of some type dragon like. Yeah. um, So I'm wondering if people found things and then kind of the stories of dragons came out from that. So anyways, all of that to say, God is using these two final creatures, whatever they are. I kind of hold to just the hippopotamus and the crocodile, um, but he's using them to describe his glory. The reason I think that, because when you so when you think today of like scary and majestic predator, you probably think lion, or if you're in the like in North America, like grizzly bear would mm-hmm. be one that comes to your mind. I think one thing to keep in mind is how terrifying the crocodile and the hippopotamus would have been to ancient peoples. Because again, you're going to the, the river, massive, yeah, massive, massive creatures. Yeah, and you, but you, and you also you don't have indoor plumbing at this point. Or not, you don't have water coming directly into your home. You have to go either to a well or you're going to a river to get the water that you need. And if you go, if you go to a river and you're just sticking your arms in there, a crocodile will jump up, grab you, pull you in, and no one will even know what happened to you. Like that's a, these are terrifying animals. So I think sometimes we, with our modern mind, they still are terrifying animals. I think the hippo is like the deadliest animal in the world, but not by like how many people it actually kills, but by um, like maybe it's percentages or something like that. Like percentage of encounters that end in death maybe is what I'm thinking of, but. Oh, that might be true. But dude, yeah, you don't want to cross a hippo in the water. I mean, and they're fast. (laughs) Or the land. They're fast on the land too. Yeah. You could, I mean, you could, yeah, the land true, but the land is, it's, it's harder to see hippos in the water, which is where most of the, the, the interactions come from. Right. Because it's through these, like these tours in the river and, and like, so, I mean, again, go back, if you want to look up like how, like hippos are crazy fast. Like mm-hmm. it's ridiculous. They're not like these little placid animals you see at the zoo, which I love going to the zoo. My wife's favorite animal is a hippo, but um, they're not scary at all. Well, yeah, my in, wife. In the zoo, at least. My wife and I went to the San Diego Zoo. Um, and this is when I was, I was writing this. So I knew like I was going to be talking about about this eventually. Yeah. And so I, I was mesmerized by the hippo because they added an actual tank. I don't know. Maybe the hippo knew why I was there. Cause it literally just came and just stood in front of me for like five minutes. And I was mm. just like, wow, this is massive. Like, this is like, I can like, and there's like a, you know, couple inches thick of glass between us. And it's still kind of scary <laughs> to be looking at it. So, sorry, we don't, this isn't a hippo podcast, but we'll talk about this. So. Well, no, but I think it is, I think it is a, uh, it is a conversation worth having because in some respects, like 
I mean, there really is. What is it? We we don't know. And we won't really entirely know what God was referring to until until we get to heaven. Like until we get mm-hmm. to see and, and and we get to know in full awareness of what what God was intending in some of these conversations. Because the other side of it too is if you if for those who take it as a dinosaur reference, dinosaurs wouldn't be alive around Job's time. Job's time. I mean, if if we want, like, unless you I, unless if 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 your contention is that dinosaurs died out at the flood. And you, if you're you wouldn't da- be and, you're, and you're dating Job. Well, if you're if you're and if you're dating Job pre-flood, which I wouldn't date Job pre-flood. Yeah, but, and I would neither. That's why. I but guess if you for are, me, the assumption I'm making is that the flood has happened. Dinosaurs have already been taken care of. No pun intended, or even insensitivity. They're to sleeping that, right? with the fishes. Good luck. Um, but there is this like it's something Job would still be able to recall back to, um, and 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 be aware of that. But right. Okay, so after the essentially the, the speeches, what do they do? They're talking about how, like, the, the theme with all of the animals is God is saying, if you don't even understand these animals or you're not mightier than these animals, how would you, how would you, how do you plan to contend with me? Um, and then God basically describes behemoth for a little bit. And then the whole last chapter of God's speech is Leviathan, which is kind of, you can see this is. It's almost the apex creature, I guess, of that of that time, where it's just the mightiest. And again, regardless of whether it's mythic or whether mm-hmm. it's the crocodile, it it, it all fits. Um, and then finally, that's kind of the end. At the end, at the end of all these speeches, Job kind of repeats the same thing that he said, except that he repents. Yeah. And so he says, I, "I repent in dust and ashes." And I think that's what God was after. It's not explicitly stated, but the fact that God doesn't continue after that speech, and that's pretty much the only difference. I think God was wanting Job to repent of of some of the things that he said about about him. So, and I, and I, I think it's just it's a nuanced look at the book because sometimes, especially when I was taught about it when I was younger, the way you're taught is Job is the good guy; he never did anything wrong. The friends are the bad guys; they don't have anything good to say. God answers, and he's like, "Job, good job. Friends, bad job." Which is a very simplistic and wrong way of looking at yeah. it. Um, on a, from a 30,000 foot level, that's kind of true. But again, Job is in the right. That doesn't mean he didn't do anything wrong. The friends are in the wrong and they're rebuked. That doesn't mean they don't say anything that's worth um, listening to. Yeah. Uh, and then I think Elihu, he, when Elihu calls for Job to repent, I think this is actually like, this is again, preparing the way for God's final speeches and also preparing Job's heart to say like, hey, maybe there are some things. I, can, I guess this just occurred to me in the moment while we're talking, but it, that is a good point because I don't think Job was even looking to repent while he was talking with Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar because they weren't bringing anything to him that was repent worthy. Right? They didn't. Have, there was no reason to. It goes back to even the conversation where Job, like, if I were, if he, even what his wife said, if I were to repent of something based upon what these three have said, I, I would have still been proven wrong, unrighteous, because mm-hmm. I it, it was it was to acquiesce the punishment. Great word. And, and it wasn't it wasn't to respond appropriately. So yeah. So it, finally, the the book ends with God denouncing. It's a, there's a yeah, there's a bit of a denouement at the end. It's showing Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far being rebuked by God Himself, which I bet none of them thought Ouch. that's where this was going. I know, right? <laughs> what? Like, whoa! Uh, and then I think this is. I love these moments here. Uh, Job offers sacrifices and prays for their forgiveness, and so God says, "I'll forgive you if Job prays and asks for it." And Job does that. So these friends who have been incredibly wicked to him, what does Job do? He asks for their forgiveness. It's very, it's not, obviously it's not exactly the same thing, but I think it points a little bit to um, to Christ. Yeah. Where Lord forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, Job is kind of showing us a shadow of, of what Jesus will eventually be um, down but that, the road. And that just even reveals the righteousness of Job. 
Yes. Yes, he was wrong in some of the questions he called out, some of the stances he took, but he was righteous nonetheless. Yeah. That, that was what instigated the whole conversation of, of the Satan having opportunities is, hey, have you considered it a Job? Have you considered him at all? So, mm-hmm. Well, that's true. I don't want my more nuanced take of Job to ever be translated as like, Job is a bad guy. Like, no, Job He's is the worst. Job is exceptional. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, and it's because of, um, it's because of his exceptionalist that the exceptional suffering he has mm-hmm. comes to him. So, yeah. And that just goes back. I mean, even in your overly simplistic, like Job's a good guy, God answers, good job, Job, bad job, bad guys. But like Job was righteous. That was what instigated this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And he endured ridiculous amounts of suffering and still maintained his righteousness. And you see the righteousness in two responses. One, his repentance and his, and all his silence before God where God spoke and he's like, I got nothing to say. I spoke once. Oh, okay, twice. I'm done. And then he repents. And then his his sacrifice and, and prayer for forgiveness, I think, is a big deal. So mm-hmm. There you be. Um, and so Job does this. He sacrifices. He prays for their forgiveness. And then he, here's what I think is really important. He grieves his loss. And so I think- Finally, yeah. Yep. And I think sometimes we get this picture of, and then Job was restored and everything was awesome and great. Uh, no, we get specifically that- Job's friends kind of come back. I really like to think in this moment that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are kind of a part of that and that they mend their friendship. Who knows? That's very like, it's also very possible that there's no coming back from uh, some of the things that they said there. Um, But regardless, we see that some of the people who Job was crying out about neglecting him and when he needed them the most, they weren't there. They come back at this moment. And so Job is finally able to grieve the loss that he's had. Um, God restores Job. Importantly, God doesn't restore Job until after he prays for the forgiveness and um, of his friends. So I think that does and show. And that's important too. Yeah, I think that does show, again, Job's high character. And finally, God restores Job's wealth, and then he has new children as well. Interestingly, we're, we're told that he has 10 children again, and it's the same numbers. It's seven sons and three daughters, but we're given the names of the daughters. We're not given the names of the sons, mm-hmm. which for, the, for back in the time, that was really interesting. It's the only thing that that goes to show, though, too, that he's not, he didn't, because it was a double, right? They, he received double what he had before. I should I should know that, but I don't remember. I, I, I want to say, because I, again, reading it through with the CSB Study Bible, but I'm pretty sure, like, of all the things that he was returned, whatever percentage, because it wasn't just he was returned, he was given back what he lost. He was given back what he lost and then some. Right. His children are the only one that he didn't see an increase from. So he he had ten children. He didn't see fifteen children. He didn't see he saw he he received ten children back. If right. that makes sense. Um, and one of the things that I read, and I don't know what you, what your thoughts or take on it, but it's it, it just it goes on to show like the the awareness of eternity, like their soul, so to speak, like the, his kids' souls were still present in, in this eternity filter, in this eternal reality. And so it wasn't like a a total replacement, but it was a continuation. Not only did he maintain the the integrity of the souls of his his first ten, but he also received ten more kids afterwards. But mm-hmm. um, so it was the only thing of all that he was 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 given back was not a double portion or whatever, no. whatever the actual portion was amount was. Yeah, that was a great point. Anyways, um, and I was gonna say too, I don't remember his third daughter's name because her name didn't quite make it into like modern parlance. But the other twos, uh, so all of his daughters were named after beautiful things, and it's kind of I love the picture of beautiful things kind of coming out of the ashes. And two of his daughters' names were Jemima and Keziah. So uh, Jemima, it's funny. I always think of, you think of syrup, <laughs> but like, it's actually like, a, a, like 
Those names have changed for Not me. Anymore. Those names have changed for me a bunch, knowing now what I know about like their origin. It's like, wow, I think those are really beautiful names because mm-hmm. of what they what they symbolize. Um, and then the book of Job ends with one of my favorite lines in all of the Bible, uh, in that Job died full of days, which I think is great. It's almost the equivalent of like, and Job lived happily ever after. So Job died an old man full of days is how it says. Um, we have a couple of things that we'll go over as far as the themes of the book, but I think I'm going to save that for my application section. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get to that here in a little bit. Here's the one thing I don't like about the ending of Job. Ooh. Is you spend all this time leading up to God's speeches, God's responses. God responds, Job responds, repents. But then the the portions of reconciliation, the portions of forgiveness, it's not drawn out as much. Like if I'm going to the narrative side of things, sure. or I'm drawing some of those story pieces out. Um, I would have like, but it, I guess it fits. I mean, I guess it's a good bookend because you don't hear a lot about his life prior to suffering. So I guess it's fair. But that's the only thing is like, as I see the restoration of, of Job from God, you don't see a lot of that drawn out. You just hear. And he lived on to... Didn't he live on to multiple generations of his children? I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I don't think that's sad, but I don't remember. Maybe that's just a Moses thing or whatever, or Abraham thing, but one of them. So, all right. Well, before we jump into Exodus, because Aaron also has some stuff to talk about today, yeah, it's right. not just me. Uh, we do want to take a second to, hey, you know, if you haven't left us a five star review yet, that would be super awesome. It yeah. helps get the podcast out there to more people. And we really appreciate your feedback and helping the podcast grow. And if you leave a written review, we will read it on the podcast just like. Uh, we're going to read Marion's 9631 today. Uh, but I will say this I do think like that wraps up the book of Job. Like, it, it's it's kind of a bittersweet moment because there's so much in this book that um, I, I appreciate. My wife and I were even talking last night, and she's like, um, respond. She was listening to the podcast episode from us last week, uh, last night, and she was just saying, it, it just has helped to understand a little bit more of Job um, and really what was going on because it's kind of hard to follow, like the, right. the way the speeches play out. Um, and so we got some good feedback from there. Even Grandpa Steve jumped on and updated his review uh, just to talk about him and his wife who listened to the podcast together that it was... Uh, it's really helpful to have a greater understanding of Job where it's not so depressing. Uh, I think it was the word that he used before he used to read it and was depressed uh, because of Job. But now it's like, it provides a lot of clarity. So I just think that those are, I mean, that's the heart that we have for these podcast episodes is it's not just, let me tell you what the Bible is saying, but like, let's interact with it a bit. So, right. um, so even, even Marion's, as I read her podcast or review today, um, the title was Amazing Podcast, Don't Miss Out, uh, with two exclamation points, one for Evan, one for me. I'm going to take it that way. Uh, but it says, I'm a new believer and feel so blessed to have found a podcast like this one. Aaron and Evan do an amazing job of reading the Bible and breaking down the stories and keeping their listener engaged. Thank you guys for this podcast. May God continue to bless both of you guys and your families uh, with a purple heart. And so uh, I appreciate that, Marion. Thank you so much. Um, and and it's funny because it's been pretty humbling the last few reviews that I've read. It's It's been new believers. It's been people who are new to this journey of faith, new to, to resting through scripture. Uh, and it's just an honor to be able to walk with you through your journey uh, together. And so I, I appreciate the reviews. Uh, I appreciate those of you who are going to leave a review again this year uh, and, and jump on and, and leave those. I appreciate that like crazy. So, um, so in wrapping up the book of uh, Job, we jump into the book of Exodus as well this week. Uh, and so just as a, a, it kind of, remember, we're reading a chronological reading plan, which is the events that they've occurred. That's what we'll jump into. Uh, so you get a little bit of teaser of First Chronicles here and there. You get, you'll get some more teasers as we get further into the into the reading plan from different books and kind of jumping all over the place. But right now, because it's God establishing his created order, his setting apart, apart his people, um, that's the, the, the context, the historical narrative that we're in right now. 
Um, and so Exodus is is what details the Israelites' deliverance from enslavement to Pharaoh, um, and it picks up essentially where Genesis left off. Um, and and apart from that one little right turn to Job, we're now getting back on the highway, so to speak. And we're back to the generations uh, of Jacob. <laughs> generations of Jacob. Uh, as a, as a quick reminder, Joseph at this point has died, uh, and then I love this. Like we fast forward like three hundred years. <laughs> Uh, so Genesis ends, Joseph dies, he makes them promise uh, his brothers, hey, God's going to show up and continue to be faithful, just stay obedient, uh, and don't forget to take my bones with you when you leave the book, of, or when you leave to go to the promised land. There's an old joke, I can't remember who, which comedian did it, but basically talking about how he hates the phrase, one thing led to another, because like it just, you can just skip over everything. It's like, oh yeah, I was born, one thing led to another, and now I'm, you know, I'm in prison for life, <laughs> like, yep. and this is kind of like... Yeah, and so Joseph died, uh, one thing led to another, and now all of the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. It's like, whoa, wait, hold on. Like, tell me a little bit more about this. Yeah, so we see, you know, we're going to read through the the first 12 chapters. So we're going to get all the way to uh, the plagues uh, uh, that God provides to deliver his people. Um, But you see in chapter one is going to be this link between Genesis and Exodus. It kind of gives an update. So it is that here's what happened. It's not a very detailed version of it, but it is a, here's what happened. You get a little bit. Um, it updates everyone on what, what has occurred since Joseph, then introduces us to the circumstances uh, that set up the story of the main character, who I would argue is the main character, apart from God, obviously. I want to be very clear, um, but which is Moses. Uh, and we see him as one of the main driving forces in the book of Exodus for the majority of the book. Uh, so that's what chapter one. Chapter really the majority of the Pentateuch. <laughs> He's yeah. kind of the main guy. Well, it's funny because I think it shifts a bit. And when we get in, and when we get into Leviticus and Numbers, you'll see some like he's still the guy, but he's not like the main character anymore. Like oh. Exodus, for me, as I review it and see it, it really is he's the main guy. Um, he's the one that God is using, God is speaking through. Even Leviticus, it's a little bit different. Numbers is a little bit different. He's still a main piece to it, but he's not the main guy. He's anymore. not. He, we're not seeing it that's from Moses' point of view. Yeah, and then you get to Deuteronomy, which is more of that review, right? I mean, that's that's right. the overall review of the of the Pentateuch, so to speak. That's a different conversation. Oh, that's but, an interesting way of looking at it. Um, so I would say Mo- Moses is that guy here. Uh, so chapter one is that link between Genesis and Exodus. Uh, chapter two, we see Moses being again. I'm going to crank through this stuff because it's all narrative, which means we can spend all the time reading and talking about the story. Uh, but as you read through the story of, of Exodus, you're going to, you're going to hit the high points and you'll be able to dive into the story more. So I'm just going to try and chronic kind of give us a quick overview. Uh, so chapter two, you see Moses is born. He's then hidden because, um, shoot, Pharaoh wants all of the, the, the sons, men, the sons of the, the sons killed. That's what yeah. it is. I'm getting like my mind goes to Herod. I'm like Herod's not alive yet. But both um, both not great. No, both not great at all. Uh, so you see, I mean, so in essence, it, it, there's a very strong line in chapter one that says that the Pharaoh did not remember Joseph or anything that had done in 300 years. That law was lost in translation. All that Joseph was known for, all that Joseph had favor for with Pharaoh, the, f- the current Pharaoh didn't have any idea of that. Um, so the Israelite people became a thorn in their flesh. Um, so Moses was born in chapter two. He was hidden because his mom didn't want to kill him until three months old, by the way, three months old. Uh, and then he was, I said he was floated. Uh, he was put in a basket. That's thro- one way to say it. Thrown in the Nile. Uh, and then Harrow, Pharaoh's daughter, uh, sees, sees this, this basket. Herod, I did always say Herod. <laughs> um, Pharaoh's daughter sees, hears something, sees that it's a baby, adopts him into his family and, and just the providence of God. Uh, Moses's sister was aware of what was happening, was observing from a distance, saw that Pharaoh's daughter had wanted to adopt. And in essence, that's the 
current modern day terminology, um, adopt this this Hebrew boy um, because she felt bad for the Hebrew children that were getting killed. And then Moses' sister jumps in and says, hey, I, I can get someone to take care of the baby for you until he's of age. In other words, they would outsource raising the children from birth until, especially Hebrew, like Hebrew children that weren't their own, from birth until they were of age. Uh, and so Moses' mom gets to raise Moses until he's of age to be sent back to the to the to Pharaoh's daughter, which is an incredible blessing from God. Absolutely, like, well. it's the it's the providence of God in that regard. So, um, all that to say, he he's adopted into Pharaoh's family. He grows up, is intelligent. He he walks, looks like, and acts like an Egyptian. Um, he sees this fight break out between an Egyptian slave master and his people. And intervenes, kills the Egyptian, hides the Egyptian's body. If you have seen the um, Prince of Egypt, Prince of Egypt, thank you. Uh, you'll you you kind of get some of those imagery images in your head. Uh, and then he confronts his his Hebrew brothers again because they're quarreling amongst themselves. And they call him like, "Oh, you're gonna kill us like you did that Egyptian." He's like, "Oh crap, people know." Well, okay. So a couple things that just occurred to me in the moment that I think are kind of interesting is. Moses kind of takes after two of the sons of Jacob in different ways. So um, like Joseph, Moses is an Israelite who is accepted into Egyptian culture mm-hmm. and is kind of taken in as one of them. And like, so if you've watched Prince of Egypt and that's your picture of like Moses, a lot, that movie's great. Love it. But um, there's a couple things that are wrong. <laughs> yes, with it. And absolutely. One, of, one of the, Moses knows that he's Jewish. Like this is not like some big revelation that happens to him. He is aware. Everyone else is aware. And in the movie, it's a big revelation. Right. Exactly. Um, the other thing I never thought of this before. Moses kills the Egyptian. He wrongly murders someone. And who's his ancestor? It's Levi, who leave and Levi and Simeon are the brothers who murdered Shechem. Yep. And so it's kind of interesting. You see the generational sin there, and as one way of putting it, or even Jacob's, um, you know, quote unquote blessing to Levi and Simeon. <laughs> yeah. But he talks about yeah. their, their violent ways and what gets Moses in trouble. It's his violent ways yeah. as well. Yeah. So that's a great thought. Great point. Uh, and so then Moses flees. Moses runs away after his 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 Hebrew brothers call him out. He's then afraid, okay, now everybody knows, which is true. The Pharaoh, Pharaoh at that point knew what had happened. He was going to punish Moses as well, but Moses right. ran away. So Moses runs to Midian, um, and Midian, just as a quick genealogy reference, is this as a son of Abraham and a, one of Abraham's wives, Keturah. Uh, Midian is one of their sons, so he has this land, this region that he that is, is named after him. Uh, and Keturah is a wife, just a reminder, after Sarah passed away. Now, it's not going to be something you readily remember. I even had to go back and double check this because I'm like, I got to make sure some of these connections that we're drawing out of Genesis still stay in this conversation because I think it's important to keep it all connected. Well, and even like when we did the genealogy jargon part, I was like, oh yeah, Abram had another wife. Like you you forget about her. It's totally very for, easily. Oh, I, I totally forgot about it. She's kind of a footnote, which is a bummer, yeah. but it is what it is, I guess. Well, yeah. Anyways, so... So he flees to Midian, um, and and then in that section, you see that Moses is then interacting with Jethro, who's going to be his future father-in-law, because he marries Zipporah. Um, and in this part of the reading plan as well this week, we're going to have this little blip where we jump into First Chronicles for like three verses or whatever. Um, and this is just going to show the the descendants. Uh, Moses and Aaron has descendants of Levi, which goes back to your point about Levi being you know the, the generational father or whatever. Right. Um, and so you see that blip, you see that connection point there that he's still part. So he, Aaron and Moses are part of the, the tribe of Levi, uh, which is the, the priestly tribe, um, as we see. Not yet. Not but yet, yet. But as you see, the, God unfold 
and unveil his plan for his for the sons of Jacob, you see the tribes of uh, of Israel, the Levites are the priestly tribe. Um, so you see that all of that is chapter two, which feels like so much, but there's so many little things and nuances that go there. Um, so while jo- Moses is in Joseph, why Moses is in uh, Midian, we see in chapter three, we get the burning bush moment. Um, and then Moses' subsequent call to go deliver his people from Egypt. Uh, and this is a significant call for, for Moses that I think is worth reading. We see this in chapter three, uh, verses one through 12. It says, meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Uh, he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, which this mountain is significant because it's going to show up multiple times throughout Israel's history and even throughout the book of Exodus. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire, but not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why, huh. isn't, why isn't the bush born, burning? Interesting. Uh, then when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called him out from the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you were standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Part of this is the shame. Part of this is I've not lived. Uh, we, we'll see this a little bit later, which I'll kind of address this kind of awkward moment uh, after God's call. Um, but he, he has this sense of shame. So he hides his face. And then he continue, uh, And then it says, then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings and I have come to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from a land, from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So because of the Israelites cry for help has come to me and I have also seen the way of the Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses asked God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be a sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this mountain. So the very same place that Moses is interacting with the burning bush is the very same sign that God alludes to when he draws the people out of Egypt, leads the people out of Egypt, they will come back to this mountain to worship God. That's significant because as you think about the journey that they're going to take into the wilderness, this mountain plays a very significant part in the whole conversation. Um, so we see that chapter three is this is this call uh, of Moses interacting and engaging Moses in a distant wilderness because he has fleed Egypt. Uh, you see in chapter four, that's gonna, this is going to details the signs that God will provide for Moses when he deals with Pharaoh. In other words, he says, not only is the sign that when you come back, it's almost like a you will you will recognize the fulfillment of my call on your life when you bring the people back to worship at this mountain. It's like here's the signs that I'm going to give you when you interact with Pharaoh. Throw your staff on the ground; it turns into a snake. Picks up the the snake by the the tail, it turns back into a staff. He says, hey, put your hand inside your cloak. It comes out as a a diseased hand. Now, interesting thing here is I remember growing up learning, even recently in in the past decade of my life, thinking that this was leprosy. Some of the indications of what, which is also referred to now as Hansen's disease, um, but the idea of leprosy, it it says that Moses' hand came out white as snow. Um, 
leprosy may not have been the disease here because some of the indications of what leprosy is and some do not always line up with actual Hansen's disease and leprosy today, if that makes sense. Huh. All of that to say, it's a disease Handy pulls out that's w- white as snow and withering. Um, either way, freaky. Either way, super freaky. He puts his hand back in, pulls it out, his hand is back to normal. Uh, then he turns water into blood. or Yeah, water turned to blood. Um, and then Moses replies this way, and I think this is, again, this is, this is all happening at the burning bush. This is all happening where God's saying, hey, I'm calling you. And Moses is like, well. Uh, and he says this in verse 10 after experiencing these miracles, supernatural, crazy, r- ridiculous miracles. But Moses replied to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you have been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. I love the way the CSB writes. Um, It's better than ESV, just saying. Whoa. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Um, It says, the Lord said to him, who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? It has a little bit of parallel to Job, just to be honest with you. I was just thinking that, yeah. Um, And then he says, now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. And then this, this verse, I don't know why, when I was reading it this time around, this verse just struck me. He says in verse 13, Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. Like that, I'm, I'm sorry, man. Like I see these things from God. I don't know if I'd have the audacity to say, God, please send someone else. But I do appreciate the honesty that Moses is walking through with God. And I think it shows the humility that God possesses in his ability and willingness to engage us in our humanity. So anyways, he says, please someone else. And then verse 14, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And Speaking said, of parallels to Job. Yeah, right. Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know he, I know that he can speak well. And also he is on his way to meet you now. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will and teach and will teach you to do both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you and you will serve as a God to him. This, this, this to me, I don't know if I've ever picked up on this before, but what God is doing here is God is setting Moses in a place that will then be able to stand forward and stand firm against Pharaoh. When he has said, you will serve as God to him, he's putting not, he's not saying Moses is divine. See, the Pharaoh believed he was a divine being. But he's putting this equal footing to where now Aaron is going to be the prophet that speaks on behalf of, of Moses, just like Pharaoh has people that speak on his behalf. That Pharaoh in Egyptian culture, the Pharaoh is always viewed as a divine being, as a divine being that has come down in human form. Well, to use like the Hebrew there, right? God doesn't say, and you will serve as Yahweh to him. He yes. says, you will serve as Elohim to him, which so Pharaoh, and again, that's the title of yes. God. And so Pharaoh would view himself as one of the the Elohim to use the Hebrew term. And so that's, yeah, that's where God's placing Moses here. Not literally, yeah. but saying that's- Well, and there's yeah. a whole lot of parallels to that next week. Oh, when we're reading into Exodus. Ooh. There's those a whole lot of parallels when the people, anyways, it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable when it comes to this Elohim stuff. Anyways, um, so then serve as goddamn and take the staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. So we have this moment where God is is calling him and God is angry with him because Moses, please choose someone else. Uh, and so we see in continuing chapter four, Moses trusts God, relents and obeys God, returns to Egypt with his family after getting Jethro's blessing to go. And then we get this. This is the crazy account I was referring to earlier. Um, and I don't want to bypass this and, and, and because I think it's, it's, it's a little bit like what the heck just happened. Uh, and as we read it, I think it's really important to understand some of it. Uh, so it's in Exodus chapter four, verses 24 to 26. It says on the trip at an overnight campsite. So this is the trip after God's call to Moses at the burning bush. Moses goes, he's with Zipporah, his wife, his children, which includes sons. 
uh, and he's on his way to go back to Egypt. And it says, at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him and intended to put him to death. So God calls Moses out of the burning bush, says, go, gets his blessing, go. And then they're at a campsite and the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord shows up and is going to kill Moses. And then it says, so Zipporah, his wife, who was a Midianite, took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, threw it at Moses' feet and said, you are a bridegroom of, bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. So what the heck just happened? And I had to do a little bit of understanding of this. So circumcision, remember, with Abraham was a sign of covenant. God establishes the sign between Abraham and all of his his generation and all his sons and children after him. At eight days old, it was typical Hebrew tradition to circumcise children. And the mother was normally involved in this process. I don't believe Zipporah would have been unfamiliar with that situation that scenario because of her connection to the to abraham's family right so that's what i was kind of curious about because midian should be circumcising their children as well because they're under the same covenant yes Are this you, is, you're, is this where you're going this is where it gets tr- okay. this is where it gets interesting in egypt circumcision didn't happen until they were 14 years old oh. because it was a sign of manhood it wasn't a sign of covenant it was a sign of coming to to into manhood at 14 years old the the boys the men the teenagers were circumcised at 14 as a, as a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not just coming into manhood, but as a sign, as a, as a step. Now you are no longer a boy. You are a man. Boy, you that's, are, that's you a are established. Tell me about it. <laughs> um, I wasn't around when my son got circumcised. The doctor said, Hey, why don't you scrub coffee? Come back in about 10 minutes. And I said, thank you, sir. Um, so, so because there was this cultural thing at war, Moses failed in this moment to circumcise his sons and shows that he wasn't being an active member of uh, of the covenant community, uh, which this is a serious offense. If Moses was going to speak on the behalf of God, he needed to observe the sign of covenant. Zipporah jumps in, uh, and because at eight days old, a lot of the moms were involved in, in, in circumcision, because they would be there at eight days old to comfort, to, to, I mean, breastfeed, whatever that looks like. They would care for their, their sons in this moment. Um, so when Zipporah jumps in, she recognizes immediately what's wrong. And, and it's almost like Moses is kind of like, oh, crap, what just happened? I don't understand. And before he even has a chance, because moms were involved in Hebrew culture, Zipporah jumps in because that's kind of, it's not, it's not her responsibility, but she would have had major involvement with it, with the sons. And it, and it just says son, right? So it says he, she cut, uh, she circumcised the son of Moses. And so somewhere along the lines, this covenant promise, this this covenant reality was not in existence until Zipporah made the decision. So then Zipporah circumcises her son, throws the foreskin at Moses' feet, which is a weird thing to think about anyways, but then says, you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And it's essentially saying like this act of bloodshed has not just saved your life, but we're now united even more closely together. Like you and I are now in this, in sync, in, in what are like a, in sapatico or whatever it's, that, that <laughs> phrasing like that. is, whatever. But like we are now tied more than ever, not just because of marriage and 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 sex for the lack of a better way to say it, but now because of the of the blood that was shed for for your son, it's we're now connected even more so. So is the idea here that the the Midianites observed it on the eighth day, or that Zipporah kind of starts it here? 
in the and that's I don't know. Interesting. Like, that's not something that I could really understand. But what I what I understand this moment is like somehow along the way Moses' son didn't get circumcised. Right. And Moses is one of those agents. It's funny because it's like it's almost one of those things as I'm looking at it from a however how many thousands of years later. Like God, why didn't you say something to the burning bush? <laughs> hey, fair. don't forget <laughs> circumcise your son because this is something that should be inherent. And I think it goes back to Moses' struggle of being a member. Like he fled Egypt having nobody. He no longer had people. His Hebrew people had rejected him. The Egyptians had rejected him. Even some of Jethro's promise to go back, he's like, hey, the people that wanted you dead are no longer there. They mm-hmm. died. They've moved. Like, so you can go back now. Um, so I think a lot of it is is indicative of the fact that Moses didn't have a people, so he didn't live to a covenant standard. And, and how that plays out with Midian, I don't entirely know. But Moses was... Was was view even and go back to even this moment? Like, does Zipporah even know that he was Egyptian? I think she, or, or, or Hebrew, because when he went to Midian, the daughter's response to Jethro was, "Hey, there was an Egyptian." He asked, like, an Egyptian. Yeah. In essence, yeah. The, in essence, what happened was he shows up, helps water and feed and get water for the for the herd. The the daughters of Jethro come back. He's like, "Hey, you're back so soon." Yeah, an Egyptian helped us. So, so Jethro, there might, there's not even an indication that Jethro really knew whether he was Hebrew or not. I'm sure he did find out at one point, especially going back to Egypt and those sort of things. But in that moment, after he married Zipporah, his son could have been born and there was no circumcision because he was an Egyptian. And huh. they could have... Now, was Midian aware of Egypt's standard of circumcision? No, I probably, maybe, I don't know. Um, but there's all these different things that play into fact. And the simple fact that Moses was, there's so many layers here, right? So Moses, having been raised in Egyptian culture, could have been convoluted the fact that he was actually Hebrew and there's an eighth day circumcision covenant agreement versus 14 day covenant establishment. It also begs the question for me is maybe Moses' son wasn't 14 yet. So if Moses grew up in right. Egyptian culture, he was operating in that month. Anyways, all these different layers, all that to say, he didn't circumcise his son, which was going to cause a, uh, a punishment of death. Zipporah jumps in and saves him. They're now united, not just because of the son. It's not just, hey, you're my wife who's given me children. She says, I've just now saved your life. You're indebted to me. We are now linked together through a blood covenant because blood was shed. Anyways. Huh, really interesting. Yeah. So that so that was like so that's a crazy thing that happened. And and I want to give it time because I think it's important as we're reading through um this especially early on in Exodus, we read through these dynamics. Chapter four continues on where Moses and Aaron finally reunite. Uh, and you see this thing play out where Moses then tells Aaron all that God has said. They go back to Egypt uh, and with the Israelites gather all the elders, and then Aaron tells them everything Moses said to him. So then you immediately see this, Moses is set up as, as God to, to the Israelite people, and Aaron is the prophet that's speaking as uh, to Moses. And, and I, 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 I do work to explain this now because I'm telling you, next week, you see it play out even more so, um, this dynamic and tension that exists in, in God's people's obedience to Elohim. Um, so all of it to say, they reunite. Aaron becomes the mouthpiece. And then we see in chapter five, this is where it kind of leads us to the end of the end of the week's reading. But you see Moses now confront Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh and he threw Aaron. And I used to, I don't know if you've done this. When I, I remember reading Exodus and reading Moses confronts Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. This says God, whatever. I would always read that as if Moses is actually the one talking to Pharaoh. That's not what's playing out right now. 
Oh, right. Yeah. It's, it's Aaron speaking on behalf of Moses to Pharaoh's servants, masters, prophets, whatever, with Pharaoh in the room. So Moses confronts Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh gets annoyed, deals more harshly with the Hebrews, where he limits the availability of resources, makes them go get their own resources, and still demands the same production of brick making that they were enslaved to do. God's people are frustrated and, and, and annoyed. Um, and God reminds them and Moses through Aaron, or reminds Moses and then through Aaron reminds God's people in chapter 6 of the promises to bring the people out of Egypt. Um, and he says, I'm going to do this through my strong and mighty hand and in, with my miracles and power. And then in chapter six, we see a genealogy of Moses and Aaron, which kind of has this continuation of first Chronicles vibe where we see the genealogy play out there. Uh, chapter seven is where we start the cycle where Moses goes before Pharaoh, demands freedom, and then it follows up with the plague. And you're going to see this rhythm of Moses goes to Pharaoh in the morning and then it says Moses goes to Pharaoh in the in the in the in the temple or whatever where Mo, where Pharaoh resides in his throne, um, and it's this dual like this is where Moses is going to Pharaoh. Uh, so chapter seven starts this cycle, uh, and then God tells Moses that he will be uh, again. This reiterates he establishes um, common ground and common platforms. Pharaoh was the highest throned person, the God, the divine figure for the Egyptian people, God tells Moses, you're going to be like Pharaoh and Aaron's going to be like the prophet. Uh, and so you see this culture dynamics play out where it's almost Pharaoh and his prophets versus Moses and Aaron. Um, then we encounter the first plague, which is water turned to blood. So he goes, turns water into blood. Then Pharaoh summons his magicians. They do the same thing. Then he doesn't relent. Chapter eight picks up the second plague, which is frogs. Moses' magicians do the same thing. Then we see third plague. We see gnats. This is where Moses' or not Moses's Pharaoh's magicians can't do it. They essentially, in essence, this is where they're defeated. Moses or Pharaoh's magicians can't produce the plague of, the plague of gnats. And I'm telling you, like it's not just a bunch of frogs or gnats. Or, it's like all consuming everywhere. There's no way or way away from it. It's just so inconveniently frustrating. Uh, and then finally, after every plague, Moses or Pharaoh relents. Okay, fine. Go, go, go pray to God on my behalf and please see these things be done. The, the funny thing is, I, again, I never picked up on this till I was reading it again. I probably had, but it, it just was refreshed in my mind. Like the frogs just didn't disappear. They all died. Uh, <laughs> and Pharaoh's people gross. had to pile them in, in, in piles, all the dead frogs in piles. And it says that there were piles all over the place. Uh, and then there was an odor throughout the land of Egypt, which is just gross. I mean, yeah, you would, yeah, with a lot of dead frogs, it's going to smell bad. <laughs> but it's it's funny because, like, in my mind, I just think of like that was in the Prince of Egypt, uh, like, but there's just like all these frogs just die, hmm. and then all the gnats, they're just like, and and I think the gnats specifically, God brought a wind to bring them out, just like He did the, the locusts. Well, that was nice of Him. Uh, so, but it, it's interesting though too because Mo, Pharaoh relied on the magicians to counter every miracle when moses stood before pharaoh the first time and performed these miracles of the snake of the sir or the staff being turned into a snake he said so did the magicians and then it, it showed that moses's staff ate the, the the staffs of the other snakes of the other ones which again shows dominance it shows the sovereignty of god um and so you see these plagues play out but now the magicians are essentially defeated they no longer have rapport or ability because they can't produce the same tension or the same reality of gnats the other thing to be mindful of here too is the land of Goshen was untouched. 
Goshen is where the Israelite people lived. This is where Joseph settled his family. Remember, they were sheep herders. They were they were uh, shepherds. And Egyptians looked down upon shepherds. They didn't like shepherds. Uh, and so that's where they settled. But the land of Goshen was never touched by these plagues because that's God's people. He only touched Egypt proper where all the Egyptians lived and, and, and moved and had their being, so to speak. Uh, the fourth plague we see in chapter eight here as well is the plague. There's the swarm of flies, which again, I'm sorry. Like I, I get annoyed with like a few fruit flies in my house. Yeah. It's really frustrating to me. And some days I feel like I can't, I can't achieve victory over them. And to be, to have even a mental imagery of everything being covered in gnats, I can't fathom that. Everything being covered in, like, dude, I get annoyed when there's one or two flies. The worst part, like, and I know Egypt didn't, didn't necessarily have this problem, but like the bzz, bzz against the walls and against the windows. Dude, I can't imagine being swarms of flies. Mm-hmm. Again, it, it happens, same cycle. Mo, Pharaoh relents, asks for prayer and relief. God relieves. Then we get to chapter nine, where we see the fifth, fifth plague of the death of livestock. You see the boils, which again, only impacting Egyptians, not God's people. The seventh was just hail. So God is slowly starting, not just to be an inconvenience, and not that these things were really inconvenient. They were a nuisance. They would they were, were, were minimizing the health and the vitality of Egyptian culture. They're, they were such a, a vibrant society because of the Nile, the fertile reality of all of the the variety of foods that they could have because of the fertileness of of the Nile. Um, so these these plagues got progressively worse where it was deteriorating the vitality of Egyptian society because their food and their resources were getting hampered and tainted and ruined. So boils then impacted all of, all of the people, all of the livestock. Uh, and it goes back again, some of the Job realities. Job was afflicted by boils. This is for an entire people group. Uh, seventh plague we see is hail, which destroys some of the, the, the produce and the livestock. And I'm not just talking like little bitty baby hails. I'm talking like these were hail. Like this is hail that was knocking and destroying things. Um, you go to chapter 10 here this week where we see the eighth plague, which is locusts. And this is where God brings in. Uh, I don't remember what wind it was. Was it the east wind? Which comes from the desert, which is a hot wind. Anyways. Yeah, the east wind comes from the desert. The locusts show up uh, and then is there. Pharaoh relents again, please. And the locusts are finishing up eating all of the, the stuff. Like they're, in essence, decimating all the leftover crops. Um, God provides relief, brings a wind, blows them away into the sea. Uh, so that would have been the south wind would have brought them up north, right? Right, yeah. So they would have, they blew them into the sea. Then we see the ninth, uh, the ninth plague, which is darkness. Utter darkness for three days. So it says that literally, it says that, that nobody did anything or went anywhere because they couldn't see anything. Again, land of Goshen wasn't touched, only Egypt. So these are just crazy miracles. And then finally in chapter 11, we get to the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn, which is a very, I think, a well-known plague because we know what it leads to. This is the plague that then Pharaoh finally relents. This is the, where the Passover is drawn out and set up. Um and you see in chapter 11 and 12, you actually see this final plague draw out. Like you see multiple plagues in every chapter, but then this final plague, the death of the firstborn, the setup starts in chapter 11 and it's drawn out all the way through chapter 12. Um, but it's, it's, I want you to notice the opening lines in chapter 11 here. Uh, it says, the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And up until this point, God was telling Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to let you go. And Pharaoh got close. There was moments where he'd said, okay, how about you and just the men go and worship God? 
And Moses would push back, no, 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 we need all to go. Well, okay, how about you and the women and the men go and the children go, but you leave the livestock. No, we have to go because we have to offer sacrifices. Um, so essentially Pharaoh was getting closer and closer and closer to relenting, continued to heart his heart, go back on his word. And and I, even finally, the, I think the darkness one is the one where he said, fine, go. And then shortly after he said, never mind, I don't want you to go stay. Um, so then we see God now tells Moses um, that I, he'll let you go after this plague. And when he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. And then he says this to Moses, now announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold items. The Lord gave the people favor with the Egyptian. In addition, Moses himself, and this was pretty crazy to me. I don't know if I ever saw this before. Um, it says, in addition, Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. The only person not highly regarding Moses that that we can take as an implication from this is Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh was the one that was being stubborn and digging in his heels and didn't want to listen to what Moses was saying. Moses had gained favor from most of Egypt except Pharaoh. So he says, hey, this is going to happen. And I, and I, this is such a crazy thing because it's not just God's delivering his people, but God's delivering his people and providing for his people because now he's plundering Egypt by their own volition. He's giving favor to the Israelite people saying, hey, ask your neighbors for silver and gold items. And they acquiesce. They give him silver and gold at the end of this plague. And so God's preparing his people to go. Uh, we see in, in chapter 12, Moses, uh, like I said, he had favor by everyone but Pharaoh. Chapter 12, we see the detail of Passover is explained. Um, he says, be ready to leave. So not only do you prepare a meal, but you need to prepare meals if you're ready to leave the house. Um, prepare the meal of the lamb, unleavened bread, um, smear the lamb's blood around your doorframe, eat what you need, only cook what you need to eat. Uh, and so if there's a, if you had a small family, go in, go into this with another family. So that way you only killed what you need and only prepared what you needed to eat. Then leave nothing until the next day. So in essence, when you're done eating, take the rest of that you have and burn it, throw it in the fire, burn it and be done with it. Cause you don't want to leave anything lingering. It says the angel of the Lord came that night at midnight, killed every firstborn, Moses and Aaron were summoned in the middle of the night uh, and told just to get out of here. So at this point, Pharaoh was awoken. His son was dead. He he summoned Moses and Aaron and says, go, get out of here. Uh, don't even wait. Don't even delay. Just get out of here. And so Moses and Aaron go back to the people. They ask for silver and gold. They get the silver and gold. Um, and this is, I, again, the, the line, this is how they plundered Egypt, which is so which is so crazy to me that they not only like left Egypt, but they were plundered. They were able to plunder Egypt as well. And then I'm going to read a long section here, uh, wrapping up ch chapter 12. This is in the final section, uh, but I think it's a really important piece to understand. Uh, and this takes place at midnight where, where God strikes, strikes down the firstborn. It says this, now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and every firstborn of livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there was, wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, get out of here immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave, and also bless me. So in this moment, Pharaoh is humbled. He recognizes the sovereignty and the power of God, of, of Elohim, who Moses and Aaron represent, and he relinquishes. He says, go. Do what you need to do. It says, now the Egyptian pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we are all going to die. So there was fear in the place that they're all going to suffer the punishment of death. 
so the people took their dough before it was leavened their, with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. And that way they plundered Egypt. I just love that. That line is so rad to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and it says the Israelites traveled from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot. This just shows you the, like the force, the sheer like magnitude of this group of people. It wasn't just like small, small things at all. Like this is a massive body of people. Uh, and that's not even including their families, just 600,000 able-bodied men. Uh, and the mixed crowd was also sent up with them along with huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. And this says, the people brought, baked their dough, brought out Egypt into unleavened loaves since it was had no yeast. For when they were driven out, they could not delay and had, no, had, had not prepared provisions for themselves. In other words, they had bread working to be ready to go to eat, but they ended up having to bring everything with them. Um, and then it says this, and I thought this was such a, a crazy thing too. Remember at the very beginning of our reading this week for Exodus, we fast forward to 300 years. It says the time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. So we catch a, a large swath of that as they're leaving. And, and then it, like it leaves like that's, so we, we leave this week, week's readings, they've been delivered and it, the chapter ends in chapter 12 with instructions for the whole household about how to commemorate and remember Passover every year moving forward, where Passover became a very deep reality of everything they did, which is set to be a reminder for God's provision. But the way God did it was so remarkable and so incredible. And that and that's what draws them out. They leave Ramses, they go to Succoth, where we'll stop there, and then we'll pick up some other things too in this wilderness journey. But that's where we end this year or this week is reading in Exodus and it's a launch in a brand new story and a brand new book of God's people. Oh, snap. Well, There's Aaron, a lot there. There's a lot there, bro. Aaron, I'm excited to announce that right now we've already broken the record for the longest episode in history. So of, I don't know how excited yet. we should be about no, that. But. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to our application portion here really quick, but then I don't think we're going to do a question. I think we're going to wrap we'll up We'll save the right question there. for next week. But let's talk about what we learned today. Okay, so what I really want to talk about is kind of just breaking down the themes of Job, particularly the ones that are talked about in the speeches of Yahweh at the end, because I think I think there's a bunch there. Um, so for me, there's there's four big ones that I, I want to hit on. Um, number one is the fact that God answers Job all with questions of perspective, and so the questions are not. Well, a their questions in general, because you like the idea was that Job wanted to question God. Yeah, in in Job's mind, the way that this was going to play out was God. Why did you allow this to happen to me? But instead, God is doing the questioning, and Job is the one who has to answer for it. Um, it reminds me of there's one of C.S. Lewis's like least known works of fiction, or one of his least known books in general is called Till We Have Faces. Um, but it's a retelling of the Cupid, uh, Cupid and Psyche myth. But at the end of it, there's one of the characters, Orwal, Oruwal is her name. I don't know if that's exactly how you pronounce it, but um, she has like this anger against the gods, right? And the gods clearly are meant to kind of represent um, God in mm. general. And so she goes down and she's going to rant and rave, or not rave, but she's going to just like go against the gods. And she kind of says um, what she wants to say, and then they don't answer her back. But then it's in that moment that she kind of begins to understand, oh, I've been wrong about everything. And I think that's kind of similar to what's happening. Or I think he, I think C.S. Lewis got a little bit of that from the book of Job, where 
Job has this picture in his head of what he wants to do, how he wants to confront, but instead God is asking him, essentially, remember who you are, remember who I am. And it's a convicting thought for us as Christians because, and and this is where I think Job is really hard because when someone's walking through pain, these are some of the things that we have to, we have to understand. But again, it's not uh, to get back to the problem with the friends, right? This isn't the tone that you're going to use necessarily. Um, But it is important for us to understand, like when we're walking through pain, that God knows a lot more Mm -hmm. about what he is doing in the midst of that pain than we do. Um, and we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay with knowing that there's some things that we're not going to know right now. There's some things that maybe we're not going to find out for years. And there's some things that we won't know until we get to the other side of eternity. Um, and that sucks. And it's not the answer that I want to hear, um, but it's the answer that God gives Job hmm. in that moment. Um, another thing I want to talk about is the great lie of the book. Um, which that sounds worse than it is. I'm not saying that the book is lying, (laughs) Um, but there's something that almost all of the characters in the book believe. And it's that character is, I shouldn't say character. It's that our love of God is directly, is directly influenced by circumstances. And so what's the Satan's whole argument at the very beginning? He says, when, when God says, have you considered my servant Job? Satan replies and says, well, of course, like Job serves you because you bless him so much. So what's Satan saying there? He's saying that Job only serves you because of what you give him. The friends believe the same thing. It's just a different side of it, right? The friends believe that you get material things because of the way that you serve God. God will bless you in accordance with the amount that you serve him. Um, Job also believes the same thing because again, what what's his whole argument? His whole argument is that he does not deserve to suffer the way that he suffered because he's lived righteously and with integrity. Um, and so I think it, it just kind of gets at that lie where most of us wouldn't say that that's what we believe. Maybe we will, um, but I think a lot of us live that way where all of a sudden we have to walk through pain we have to walk through suffering. We have to walk through tragic things. And we think, well, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? And you see people walk away from the faith all the time, which is really which is really sad because yeah. there's just this idea that, well, no, I'm a Christian and I've done everything right, or I've, you know, I'm I'm working my hardest to serve to serve the Lord. And yet this really painful circumstance, and 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 it is sometimes wicked, evil things. And I don't I don't want to belittle that at all. Um, but there's this expectation that we won't have to walk through pain because we serve the Lord and it's just not true. And in fact, a lot of times there's more pain. Um, especially like if you read like the new Testament and what happened to all of the apostles and a lot of the early Christians, um, they endured more pain than the average person of their time because they were serving the Lord. Um, we should not expect to get a pass from pain in this life mm-hmm. because we serve God. Um, and that kind of connects to the next section of Job, which is really just the idea of enduring through pain. And if there's one thing that Job demonstrates, I think it's the fact that he he holds fast to his integrity. He refuses to curse God. Um, he refuses to just throw his hands up. So again, Job is mistaken about God and he lets his frustration flow and he, he, lets, it, he lets it be known that he's frustrated. Um, but he never walks away. He never walks away from the faith. He never even hints at the idea that he would stop serving and worshiping Yahweh. It's just the idea that he cannot understand what's happening. Um, and so I think it's an encouragement to us as Christians when we walk through pain to, it's not a bad thing to question. It's not a bad thing to ask God, like, God, why is why is this happening? Um, but again, it's making sure that we don't have in our hearts in those moments is, is our 
is our heart displaying our pride because we think that we can do it better? Or is our heart just displaying just literally like a child going to the parent and saying like, can I have, can I have some answers on this? Is he, is kind of what I'm viewing there. Um, and so for those of us Christians who are in the midst of pain, I think Job is an incredibly encouraging book and Job is an incredibly encouraging man in that part. Um, and then finally, I think one of the things that we don't talk about very much with Job is how Jesus is the better Job. And I think that there's, um, and I've said this before on the podcast, I wish I, I wish I could find it. One of these days, I'm going to actually be able to track down this sermon, but it's an old, it was at a, what was the church? Coral Ridge. It was Tolian Chivijan's old church back in the day, but it was like a guest speaker. It was a super old guy with a gravelly voice and he sounded awesome. And the whole message was about how Jesus is the better blank. And there was no like three points. There was no like structure really. It was just going through the whole of the Old Testament and just saying, this happened, this had him, happened, Jesus is the better blank. So from Adam all the way through. Um, and so I think that's a really important filter for us to look through. In the, as particularly when we're reading the Old yeah. Testament, is how does it point to Christ and how is Jesus the better Adam? How is Jesus the better Moses? How is Jesus the better David? Um, and so how is Jesus the better Job? Well, Job is suffering fates that he, at the very least, doesn't deserve or he didn't do anything to call that this suffering upon him. Jesus is suffering in sinless perfection and he mm. suffers a fate that he never, he, he bears the sin of everyone else. Um, we have Job selflessly at the end, praying for his friends for their redemption, even after they've done e evil to him. What does Jesus do on the cross? He prays for the people who are doing evil for, the, for him. In fact, in those moments, he's dying for them. Mm -hmm. um, and so we see how Job as the suffering man of integrity points us to Jesus, the suffering man of God. And I think when we are able to look at Job through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of Christ, um, it becomes even more powerful of a book than it already is. But that, that's that's all I've got to say on the uh, the application portion. It's a little bit longer this week, but I just- Dude, you know, I feel like you should write a book. You should just do something with it. <laughs> uh, no, I think that's all good, man. I think um, I think that's the important thing, especially as we're wrapping up books. Not that one book has more magnitude than the others, but like there's, there's sometimes significant- more applicable, relevant, under like personalizations that we can understand. So I think those are all really good. Um, I won't take nearly that long uh, in my applications, not because I'm better, uh, but because I feel like we're just diving into the story of of God's people being delivered, um, and 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 they're getting ready to go on this crazy journey of of God revealing Himself, of God's wrath being uh, poured out and then relented because of of, of the faithfulness of a few. Um, there's a lot that's going to be playing out over the next months of reading. Weeks is probably better because I can't believe we finished Job in two and a half weeks. Yeah, is... um, but as I as I look at the book of Exodus, as I look at the launch of of this journey, which Exodus literally means deliverance, it's that it's that story of their leaving exile or not exile, sorry, of their leaving slavery. Exile is coming. That's where they're going. They're leaving slavery to go to exile. Um, but I, I think it's really. I think it's just really important to understand like the sovereignty of God's call and his plan. Like Moses, for all intents and purposes, Moses fled everything. He released his entire identity as an Egyptian and as a Hebrew. He was in no man's land. So which is why Midian was a was a good place for him to end up, because he was still in kind of a a, a similar vein of God's people, but not God's people, not God's covenant community. Um and 
And so I just, I, I reflect back to, as I read these things, like all that God did through Moses hinged on his willingness to stay faithful and obedient and humble enough at the burning bush. If he didn't, if, if Moses literally dug in his heels and said, God, choose someone else, I'm out, I'm not interested. Um, but God had a, like, Moses had an encounter with God before he had an encounter with God. And what I mean by that is we're going to see in, in, in the coming weeks, like Moses is, has this moment where he, he asks to see the glory of the Lord. And God's like, ah, you can see, uh, let me walk past you so you can see after I walk past. Um, and so he has this incredible encounter where his faith, face is illuminated. But at that, that burning bush moment, um, I remember hearing uh, Heath Adamson speculate on this uh, years ago at one summit that we were at. I don't know if you remember this, uh, but alluding to the like, you know, there's there's some uh, Jewish tradition that that would suggest that Moses had passed by this same burning bush multiple times before deciding to turn aside to see it. Hmm. Um, and, and I don't have the reference. I don't have exactly the point, but I just remember like that was, it struck me in such a, a profound way. But at the end of the day, like Moses turned aside, he had a moment and then he had the audacity to, to negotiate with God in that moment of like, ah, but God, I'm not really someone who can speak well. And who puts the mouth, you know, who puts a mouth on man? And, um, but I, I just, I think it's really important to understand like 430 years in Egypt, God's people suffered. Is that right? Maybe it wasn't 430 years, but they suffered for hundreds of years right. under the impression of the Egyptians. It goes back to the suffering filter. God's sovereignty, God's provision doesn't always play out the way we expect it to. And even God's answers doesn't always fulfill what we expect and how we think it should be answered. The Egyptians or the, the Israelites' response that we will see, um, it, it doesn't always, they're, they're not happy with how God delivered them sometimes. And they blame Moses in some respects. Um, but I just think it all hinged on, like, and could could God have chosen someone else? Yes, absolutely. But God had a plan set, and forth, set forth in motion that included and involved Moses, even in the midst of his, his, his fleeing away from, from any identity. I think there was a season of wilderness that was important. Uh, but I say all that to say, like, I think the easy application there is, is understanding, like, God is in control and sovereign over all these things. And we will never fully understand why he would choose who, we, who he would choose. And, and just like Moses, who wasn't the greatest speaker, he still was called to fulfill a purpose. Um, and we have to trust God and God's sovereignty in all of those things. And I, I love that the, the dynamic with which God reveals himself, any other worldly comparison, because the Egyptians were no one to bat an eye at, right? I mean, the, they were an empire that was an empire. That you don't okay. They're they're powerful. They're I'm they're, they're they've got everything figured out. Like they're doing great great things. But at the end of the day, God still showed them up, even through the simple miracles that Pharaoh's magicians couldn't handle either. So I just think there's a lot of God's sovereignty in the conversation. Uh, and I am excited as we read through it. There's some more different nuances and layers and levels of conversation that God's people interact and come face to face with and who God is. But I think at the end of the day, like no matter the situation we're navigating, we have to come back to the point of do I trust God is who he says he is and will do what he says he'll do. Because at the end of the day, our job is obedience, not sacrifice. And that's the tension. So no, great points. 
All right, well, that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. But hey, especially at the end of this extra long episode, thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.